We felt like our skill set was definitely well geared towards that investor education, investor relations, finding and vetting good partners. I know how to analyze risk from those days in banking. You know, you look at the industry risk, the business risk, and the management risk, those three levels, anytime you're looking at a prospect. And so this is kind of what we sort of applied to our work and said, okay, where is our sphere of genius? You know how like there's so many things to do in this syndicated multifamily investing that if you can find your real areas of genius where you excel and you feel good and you're satisfied and contributing in that way, that's where you should play. Everything else you should either partner or outsource. Welcome to the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. If you are looking to take your real estate investing to the next level and learn how you can achieve your financial success by investing in multifamily real estate, then this show is for you. Our mission is to help you improve your education and learn proven strategies from industry leaders to help you master multifamily investing. Now here's your hosts, Cody Laughlin, John Beatty, and Brian Alfaro. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast. As always, I am your host, Real Estate Cody, and joining me as always is the one and only Mr. Brian Alfaro. What's up, buddy? Uh, I go by a coffee connoisseur now. Oh, I see, I, I see. You're, you're so temperamental. One week you're like, yeah, and the next week you're like, oh, what's up? Okay, all right, I got you now. <laughs> Things are going well, Cody. Things are going well. It's nice a busy day, right? It is uh, a busy we, day. We've been running around like crazy today. So that's okay. Brian, go ahead and introduce our guest today. All right. Today <laughs> we have Miss Kiki. Kiki Williams is here to speak about how she and her partner empower individual investors to create the financial freedom to live their dreams. Peter and Kiki co-founded Global Investor Alliance to help people obtain the mindset, strategies, and tools to create reoccurring income from the recession-resilient real estate investments that have ultimately accelerated their own wealth-building success. Through their U.S. multifamily GP partnerships, they currently manage a portfolio of 1,000 doors across four projects in three metros, valued at over $200 million. Additionally, with their America's Farmlands and Agribusiness GP partnerships, they currently operate over $70 million in assets under management across nearly 1,000 hectares of farmland. I don't think I've seen that word before. <laughs> Kiki spent 20 years in management consulting and corporate sales marketing with Peter. And while Peter spent 25 years on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley prior to embarking on their full-time real estate investing adventures, they have applied their collective corporate skills, experience, and networks to their real estate investing pursuits in a way that empowers others to live their best life and also quenches their thirst for service, global travel, and adventure. Welcome to the show, Miss Kiki. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Kiki, we appreciate you being on the show today. And if anybody can't tell already, we're about to have some fun. Love your energy. We had a good conversation before the show started. So excited to have you here. And so looking forward to learning more about you. So go ahead and tell us a little bit more about your extensive background. Yeah. So, I mean, really kind of the the typical, you know, like your parents say, work hard in school, go to a good college, get a good job, get in that grind. Isn't that what we all do? Get in that corporate grind. And we think, okay, we've done all the right things. And so for me, I actually started as a commercial lender and parlayed that into working for PricewaterhouseCoopers in management consulting for many years. 
Then when I got to the, I loved consulting because it's always, it's, you know, it's like project after project after project, right? It never gets boring. You're always moving on to kind of another new, interesting thing. And so I love that aspect about consulting, but I also was a road warrior. So when I had my little boys, it was like, that's not going to work anymore. I had a lot of clients that had been in pharmaceuticals, biotech, medical device, that kind of thing in the sort of middle Atlantic, like around Philadelphia area. There's a lot of them, right? And so I kind of leveraged those client relationships and said like, geez, you know, what else can I do in corporate that kind of allows me to still have a life outside of my kids, but it's a little bit more low key. And so I did medical sales, pharmaceuticals, and then uh, medical devices after that, stayed in that for quite a while. And then I actually helped someone take their medical company. So the doctor that was running it was really just working like mad and working to death because he was so control oriented in like a one-man show. And I'm like, you know, I could help you create passive income. (laughs) Like you could hire a staff that's doing a lot of this work and you could do the surgery, the part you love, you know, because most surgeons are not necessarily the best bedside manner. They love their craft, you know, their technical craft. And so over the course of eight years, just really put that business on a whole new level and then just had this epiphany to myself, like, why the heck do I just do this for other people? Like I... I need to do this for myself. I need to shift my life, you know, because it's hard, first of all, to be someone who comes in general manager to take a, you know, a company kind of to the next level, but wasn't the founder. So often you will be treated differently and not with maybe the level of value and respect that you're actually delivering. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it takes a while in life to, to see yourself, you know, really see yourself and the value you provide. And yeah, so when I finally got there, I thought, okay, well, what do I want to do? What do I want to apply myself to? And real estate is something that literally has been like in my background since I was five years old. And so I just was like, yeah, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So gone through a whole series of investing in real estate in all sorts of different ways, everything from being a hard money lender to developers in Texas, actually in the Houston area, to investing with a partner in fix and flips down in Southern California, did some house hacking of my own when my kids were toddlers, because that's how you survive in the San Francisco Bay Area, even when you have six-figure incomes. (laughs) And yeah, then really went through kind of mobile home parks. So I started experimenting with syndications. I'd first gone from the private lending to the kind of house hacking and the fix and flipping and then sort of the clusters of single family homes. But I was in California. And so I did them in Texas, Florida, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, places where I could get the cash flow, right? But then after that painful experience with often very poor property managers and, you know, when you're vacant, you're 100% vacant trying to keep good tenants and just, I just found it was not passive. (laughs) And so then I discovered multifamily and was like, now that seems passive. And so started doing the syndications and then, you know, getting a little experience with it myself. How does this feel? What am I looking at? How am I vetting them? Do I trust them? That sort of thing. And, you know, what's the performance being? And then saying, okay, I want to really understand this on a deeper level. So my partner, Peter and I actually, when we went to Florida, we bought a few small multifamilies ourselves. And just the two of us, just our money, partnered up, made it happen. And holy heck, is it hard work. And that's on small assets, you know, like 20 units and less, right? So we just were like, wow, okay, we love this vehicle. And a lot of things went wrong and we still did 
really well. So we were smart enough to know the market was on our side. And we left there in like that market, investment market in 2018. We thought it was the top. We thought we were crazy. And now look at it, it's still gone because we were in the Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater area. So little did we know, but nonetheless, took that money and kind of parlayed that into other things and really used that to actually start to seed fund this global investor alliance. So that was kind of like our new venture to say, hey, there are a lot of people out here like us who have either been entrepreneurs in their day-to-day active grind or people who have been in the corporate grind, but they want passive income, but they don't really know much about real estate. They know they should probably be in it, but they're kind of afraid of it. They don't really understand it and they don't realize it can be passive. So that's kind of how we got to so many friends and family who at first thought we were crazy. We're like, oh, I get it. And then it was like, you should teach this to people. And so it was kind of like this labor of love that we just started with and kind of built from there. And then what we chose to do, instead of being the operating GP with all the pressure of execution, we've become the GP sort of equity infusers. So we're on the GP side. We also invest on the LP side so that we're aligned with our investors. But we felt like our skill set was definitely well geared towards that investor education, investor relations, finding and vetting good partners. I know how to analyze risk from those days in banking. You know, you look at the industry risk, the business risk, and the management risk, those three levels, anytime you're looking at a prospect. And so this is kind of what we sort of applied to our work and said, okay, where is our sphere of genius? You know how like there's so many things to do in this syndicated multifamily investing that if you can find your real areas of genius where you excel and you feel good and you're satisfied and contributing in that way, that's where you should play. Everything else you should either partner or outsource. That's how I feel like you get success most quickly. There's a whole lot to unpack there. <laughs> no, that, that's such a great decorated background and a lot of uh, a lot of experience and wisdom that comes through navigating all the different strategies you've been through. And picking back off of what you just alluded to is kind of picking your strength, your niche, and just really focusing on that and then delegating or partnering outside of that. I definitely agree. We're big proponents of the same. But going back to your diverse experience in real estate, was that kind of intentional in diversifying across multiple strategies or was that kind of like a trial and error to try to get to find that that one niche that you said hey this this is it this is our this is our strength yeah good question it started out as a trial and error i am quite a kinesthetic learner i learn by doing and what do they say that you know knowledge is one thing but wisdom comes from the experience of doing it right And so for me, I just know that's the way I learn. And so I just had to go through it and try things and kind of assess them, reflect them, pros and cons on each. What did I like? What did I not like? Move towards what I like. You know what I mean? Next one, what did I like? What did I not? Move again further towards what I like. And also getting a sense of what the returns are and so forth. So it started out as that trial and error. But I don't think there's just one niche either. You know, I mean, I used to kind of be that way. I would say multifamily is an absolute favorite for sure. I mean, it's just in the US, so data-driven, transparent, formulaic. If you follow the numbers and you stay disciplined to your process, 
it's hard to not make money. And if you're conservative and you do your scenario analysis, right, type of thing. And so I think that's because it's so, Peter in particular, very comes from a tech background, right? So he's so systematized and process oriented. And it's like your brain wants to go to either automated, not thinking, or it's in fight, flight, adrenaline mode, right? And so the more you can systematize, the kind of easier your world becomes, the more time you get back. But I will say you could call multifamily and we've done mobile home park syndications. Those have been great cash flowers. You know, that's been kind of good. Short-term rentals have been a piece of what we've done as we've done as well. But the multifamily to me just feels like in our experience, the most steady eddy. And the Maslow model is kind of like what we call ourselves, the Maslow model investors. So two core asset classes that we feel are particularly recession resilient in real estate. And that's multifamily because everybody needs a home. And even in tough times when they're all tight in their belts and like, I'm not in that big fat single family home anymore, they still have to live somewhere. They go to an apartment. And more and more people, millennials and boomers are wanting freedom from the big burden of that asset that's not really an asset when it's your personal residence. So to me, like, it's hard not to win in that if you have good partners and good process. And so that's kind of why we've continued to go there. Now, we have found the other part of Maslow. When you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the physiological level, that base foundational level, it's what do we need every day? Shelter, a roof over our heads and food. So farmland has become our other core pillar of investing that we help our members of our Global Investor Alliance gain access to these type of investments. And what's unique about that is we started out only in private equity accredited investor syndications for farmland. Now that we've done a lot of the early ag development work, we have evolved that model and we're able to sell like those turnkey single family homes that weren't so turnkey I was telling you about with the property managers out of state. We essentially provide that model, turnkey cash flowing farmland to individuals and at a price point that is more digestible for most people. And you, because it's direct ownership and not a syndication, so it's not a security, you're able to be a non-accredited investor and invest in this and have decades worth of cash flow, not have to do the hard work of the farming yourself. I grew up on a hobby farm. My dad was an engineer. We had 25 acres. My grandfather had like 100 acres next door. I know freaking how hard that work is. It is really hard <laughs> bringing in hay in August. Humid heat on the East Coast is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. But Brian, this yeah. is interesting. Uh, Kiki, you're the only, I think, second investor that I know of that is investing in agricultural assets. Uh, the other would be probably most people in the industry know Robert Helms. I believe he has a pretty sizable portfolio in agriculture. And I guess that was mm-hmm. my first introduction to that uh, concept. And, you know, just it, we always talk about this all the time, right? Where real estate is so dynamic. I mean, there's so many different niches and so many different verticals you can go. And so it just lends it for any investor appetite, which is so unique. I don't really know of any other asset classes that offer this type of diversity as an investor. So that's really cool. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I think that diversification is important too. You know, if you're a passive investor looking for passive income, like Kiki was at first, 
putting all your eggs in one basket isn't always a recommended strategy. I'm mm-hmm. not a financial advisor, but I'm sure mm-hmm. they would tell you that, you know, so yeah. maybe you have a little bit of multifamily, maybe you've got some A class for some stability, and maybe you have some C class and heavy lift for some cash flow, and then maybe That's you it. have some mobile home parks for some cash flow, but then you maybe have some industrial warehousing too, some triple net. You sort mm-hmm. of diversify your portfolio to to what makes sense for your risk tolerance. And uh, you know, that's that's sort of the best way to if there is a you know, quote, recession, some of those things are going to do really well. And then some of those things might take a little bit of a hit, but you're still well balanced. Yeah, that is so spot on, Brian. I mean, honestly, it was funny. I was listening, Scott Trench, you know, the CEO of Bigger, Bigger Pockets, Pockets, right? Yeah. yeah. So I was listening to him the other day on this podcast and he was saying, hey, when you're like early on and you're in your 20s and you kind of take like the path he did, it's like, you know, you can't really be diversified. Sure. You have, you have, you have no choice but to be all in because typically you have less money. You don't have accredited status. And so you, it's sweat equity. It's your work and effort that's pushing you up that hill. But for us, given that it's kind of like when I got serious about real estate investing on a larger scale, I was older. I'd worked many years in corporate. I had that accredited status. And it was like, duh, you got to leverage that. And that allows what you say, Brian, to get into a little bit of a, a, a few different things to test the waters on not just the asset class itself and how it performs in good times and bad, but also the asset manager and how they perform in easy times and in tough times and how transparently and proactively do they communicate with their investors to talk through what's happening and kind of keep that tight so people want to come back. Because the idea is, you know, you work hard to get investors. You want your performance to bring them back again and again and again. Hey guys, it's your host, Cody. And I wanted to take a few seconds to ask you a very important question. Do you really know how to evaluate a passive investment opportunity when it has been presented to you? We all know passively investing is a great way to invest in multifamily real estate, but do you really understand the intricacies of passively investing in these private placement offerings? Sure, there's a ton of education on how to buy apartments, but not enough education on how to effectively evaluate a private placement offering when considering a passive investment opportunity. With the ever-growing number of syndicators entering into the multifamily space, it is important that you have a fundamental understanding on how to protect your interests and most importantly, your capital when investing in these private placement offerings. If you wanna learn how to passively invest like the pros and avoid the pitfalls of many novice investors, then check out our free investor guide titled How Savvy Investors Evaluate Multifamily Deals on our website at www.blueoakinvest.com forward slash evaluate to learn how you can confidently evaluate your next passive investment offering. Now back to the show. Absolutely. Well, obviously that relationship and that trust is built on your ability to execute and also your experience, right? And your yep. knowledge of the industry. And, and that kind of brings me back to one of the points you just mentioned, kind of your core philosophy is based on risk mitigation and you know analysis and making determinations on, hey, what's a good concrete sound investment that can weather any type of economic cycle, right? And so mm-hmm. you mentioned a couple of things. I want to go back and highlight for those who may not be familiar, the Maslow model investing strategy. Talk to us a little bit about what exactly is the Maslow model and introduce us to that, uh, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really just quite simple. And just as it sounds is when, as we experimented with all these different asset classes, because we've done small boutique hotels as well, 
a bit of industrial things. So kind of like that really wide gamut, it became really apparent to us. And I sort of coined the phrase when we hit COVID and I thought, oh yeah, all those Airbnbs that shut down initially, the Disney World short-term rental we had that was empty, the one in Playa del Carmen that was empty and so on and so forth. And, you know, you learn these different things and it was like, wow, you know, as we sat there and thought about it, it was like, what do we take away from this experience? You know, because our multifamilies were still humming. They were still humming. And it was like, huh, so was our farmland, you know? But we had all these other, you know, we invested in cannabis and private companies, different things like that, right? We like private businesses and supporting other entrepreneurs who are doing innovative things that we believe in, right? But at the end of the day, the things that held strong were the things that were serving base human needs, no matter what. Again, we need food, we need shelter. And so it was like, okay, if you want to experiment, great. But we advise folks, if you're going to start investing in real estate and we take them through like sort of our education platform that kind of walks them through the whole process and deep into those particular asset classes, we're like, listen, hey, try what you want. You want to do a short-term rental because you live in the mountains in Colorado and it's a great resort town to earn you some great income. Great, do it. But make sure you have a healthy portion of your real estate assets in multifamily because it's going to be the thing that holds firm. And in farmland is what we found. We didn't really, we knew multifamily was going to run, but we didn't know that the, that the farmland would. And part of the reason that the farmland was still successful for us is because we own the whole integrated process from seed to sale of that produce to the markets, to the, tar- to the um, Walmarts, to the Costcos and the Trader Joe's and these kinds of big players in the market. And so that's where we realized, okay, right? Because look at, there were all the food shortages. There's been right? Lots of crazy stuff going on. But because we weren't relying really on middlemen, we control that process. That's part of the early ag development work we did with the private equity stuff. That really saved us because see a lot of people, they'd have their fruit, but like they can't get it organized to get it out or they don't actually have a brand name that's recognized and respected that these big players want to buy from. Because the thing is, you can't sell to you know a Costco and a Walmart and an Albertsons and all these companies unless you have enough scale to provide them with consistent supply. When you think about the food supply chain, right, that's critical for them. They need to know that you can't just deliver six containers this week. You can do it every week. So that's you know again how we sort of just circle back to like okay of all the things and all our friends who have been in office or retail and all of these types of things, even condos and things that weren't selling because people didn't want to be in the same building. We were like, okay, yeah, Maslow, core needs rental, real estate, particularly in multifamily because of the scale and then the farmland. That's such a great point. And I, I think we've referenced this before. I think you referenced this actually early in our conversation where COVID really exposed a lot of the downside risk for other investment vehicles, right? As business owners, right? We saw a lot of brick and mortar stores go down. We've seen a lot of small businesses close their doors. Mm -hmm. We've seen this crazy volatility in both the equities markets, uh, cryptocurrencies hot, you know, and and we've seen some volatility there too. But to your point, I think COVID really emphasized just how 
stable multifamily investment could be. And and I, I guess our agriculture as well, you have to forgive me, I don't know much about that that mm-hmm, sector, mm-hmm. but uh, but the point being is I think it really highlighted those investment verticals that are really your hedge against some of these downside exposures. And, and if you think about how the fiscal policy really supported both our residents and us as business owners with rental assistance. And, you know, yes, there's been eviction moratoriums and things like that, but there's been some relief as far as PPP programs and things like that to make sure that people are not displaced from their, like you said, their most basic need, which is their home. And and there's really no other investment strategies that will have that type of backing from from our government, our lawmakers. Because so when you talk about hedging against that risk or really evaluating asset classes. I think that's something to really draw attention to. And that's why I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned this Maslow hierarchy yeah. of needs because it, it definitely exposed itself during COVID, I feel. Yeah. And don't you feel like people have like taken stock of their life a little bit during COVID and been like either, <laughs> I think you end up with babies or divorces. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it seems to be one or the other, <laughs> but I mean, people who have taken their parents out of senior living and made an ADU in their backyard to have them closer. Like, I mean, I think that we might see a little bit of a resurgence of intergenerational living that, you know, Americans have been so fiercely independent. You're kind of like shamed if you're living with your parents or whatever after a certain age. But, you know, we have this whole younger generation that's saddled in their school loan debt, right? And cost of housing is insane. Cost of rent is insane for most of them. They might even be making good money, but they just can't even get out from under this mountain of debt. And, you know, so you can kind of see definitely here in Denver, we've seen an explosion of ADUs like they've had in um, LA as well, where they've changed the zoning. They've done a lot of upzoning to allow for these big single family home lots to have an ADU built in the back in in the backyard and maybe it's for your home office cuz we're all trying to work from home and you got dogs and kids and all these other things right and if you're two working adults at home it's super hard right or you might need to put your parents there or you might need to put your adult kids there to just kind of have them have lower rent while they get started in their careers so they can save and be frugal and that sort of stuff right so i think you know, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. And I and I think the other thing that I actually experienced a lot of here in Denver, we had a lot of tech people come from San Francisco and spend like all of last winter in Colorado so that they could work from anywhere and have a life. They could be in the great outdoors. Colorado was one of the best places to be through this pandemic because it's kind of like an even mix, not too red, not too blue. It's like, Live and let live, do your thing, be conscious of other people, be kind, but there's big open spaces for people to spread out in. And so we definitely saw a lot of people come for three to six months at a time. And if they're, you know, particularly tech professionals, we have so many friends in that industry that, you know, that was real apparent to us. But I mean, most kind of office professionals anymore, unless you're in sales, like maybe medical devices where you have to be in the hospital. If you're basically talking to people and doing stuff on Zoom and occasional face-to-face, you can set up regional meetings, like pack it all into two weeks time and then go live where you want to live. So I, and I think, you know, people have realized like that this just grind myself into the ground, but not really ever lift my head to, 
to live is a little crazy. Like it's not really living. And so I think that will be interesting to see what that does to multifamily. I know other multifamily investors that are already looking at and closely examining, depending on where they're located, right? How they might shift a certain number of their units towards these shorter term leases where people want to be able to maybe rotate with the seasons. You know, there's so many employers that are not requiring their workers to come back full time. And people are like, yeah, either they're either they're getting an RV, if you haven't noticed, <laughs> or <laughs> they're going and they're living out of Airbnbs for extended periods of time. And so I think it will be real interesting to watch what, what evolves there. I don't know. What have you guys experienced? Anything in Texas in that regard? Long stays or anything like that, but not year-long leases? I don't know. That's an interesting concept. I don't think I've heard that one, Brian. No, we're just experiencing a lot of migration. I would say to mimic you know, what you've probably seen in Colorado. Yeah. Just a lot of people are moving here, particularly to Austin. You know, Austin yep. is a mini Silicon Valley, mini San Fran, if, if, you, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. So we've seen a ton of migration there, which is obviously, you know, the writing's on the wall on Texas, right? Great market. You're in the Texas Triangle and even some of the secondary and tertiary markets. Oh, yeah. It's not a surprise. It's not a secret anymore. A lot of people want to live here for, for a variety of reasons, including quality of life, of course. But, you know, this whole Maslow thing that we've been talking about and, and diversification, I just think it's, you know, it's super important for investors to remember. And I know as we talk to potential partners that are passive. And I'm sure you talk to partners that are passive. It's just about reminding them that other investment vehicles, things are always good until they're not, whether it's stocks or cryptocurrency or you know REITs or whatever. Those things are going really well sometimes, but you got to make sure, I think you diversify into some real estate as well, because it's an attractive asset class. It did well during the pandemic and it's done well in the past. And I think that's why we're seeing so much competition in some of these main markets. So yeah. A lot of, we definitely live in interesting times and it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next five years. But uh, we're, we're pretty confident that things are going well and going to continue to, to be on the up and up in, in all these uh, markets. Yeah, I agree. We're um, so we're invested in Austin and San Antonio both. And I, I, I liken that distance from Austin down south to San Antonio about what hour and 15 or so. It's about the same as Denver to Colorado Springs, which if you know, Colorado Springs is like, it's like the San Antonio. It's smaller. It's not as sexy. It's more industrial, blah, blah, blah. But it cash flows like crazy. So we have investor friends that are kind of in a few of the mountain states, which Everybody seems to want Texas or the Southeast, right? So it's like, oh, that's interesting to watch. But Colorado Springs, yeah, for sure. You're going to be cash flowing more quickly because the rents are growing like crazy there. They are in Denver too, but they're growing even faster in Colorado Springs. And you're starting at a lower price point to begin with. you know. And I see that same dynamic like in San Antonio and in Austin. It's a little bit, San Antonio is a little less high flying but very diverse economy, accessible to, you know, the big sexy city and all of that. And Austin, you know, right now, right, everybody's talking about Austin, Austin, Austin. They're going to be the first city, well, Boise first, then Austin, to have like housing crash, right? And I'm like, I don't care. I'm in multifamily. (laughs) That stuff's not going anywhere. All those people who can't afford those really high-priced homes that have now come to Austin, thanks to the Californians, I know. (laughs) But nonetheless, it's like, okay, they still need somewhere to live. And they want a nice, decent place to live. 
And just, we love, you know, we love that market all day long. It's super competitive. That's the hardest part, right? About Austin right now, it's super competitive. I, I would argue that's all of all of Texas and probably the Southeast. And, and yeah. we, know, we know that all too well uh, down here in Houston. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're competing against a, a giant herd of capital coming in, which is just oh, crazy. Yeah. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, I think, I think the takeaway from this part of the conversation is really just being in tune to what's happening in the market, right? And, and on a daily basis right now, because yeah. you highlighted the point, like back in 2018, you had a lot of people like yourself who were saying, hey, this is the top of the market. Things are going to correct. Things are going to take a turn. And it rode out till COVID. And obviously COVID came out of nowhere. And then now post-COVID world, I mean, especially for commercial real estate, multifamily in general, I mean, things have just dramatically appreciated. I mean, we've been yeah. seeing 10, 15, 20% appreciation just in a very short time frame, mm-hmm. And all indicating factors would suggest that this probably could continue for quite a bit longer. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, somebody like yourself, who's obviously you mentioned you're very in tune to what's happening in the market, looking at certain patterns, demographics, things like that, risk mitigation are all things that you have to be doing in today's industry just to really stay on top of it and really make an accurate judgment on um, what investment strategy you're going to go with, right? And so, yeah. so I want to go back and really end the conversation uh, with, you mentioned going back to your days in the financial world, in the risk analysis, and you mentioned a three-step framework on analyzing that risk. Can you highlight those again for us? Yeah. So I started basically, I was a finance major, right? Right out of college, I worked for this group of commercial lenders. And I was kind of like, you know, the grunt that did the financial work for all of them and their deals, because commercial lenders are salespeople, right? They're selling money. And they've got to make their case though to the credit officer of the bank to substantiate why this is a credit worthy customer. And so the first level you always look at is the industry risk. What industry are you in? You know, for this, obviously, it's real estate, right? That is the industry. And more people are made millionaires through real estate than any other investment on the planet. Like historically speaking, hundreds of years back, this is true. And every successful entrepreneur you know who's had a successful company exit or what have you, What's the first thing they do with their money? They put it in real estate, you know? And and then most of them usually get really into that and that parlays into another set of businesses and things, right? Because you learn and discover. So there's that first is the industry level risk and that's understanding real estate. But you got to look at real estate. It's like not one market in the US, right? It's a bazillion micro markets. So looking at that and then the business of multifamily, right? So when you look at the business of multifamily, Okay, your macro analysis across the US, where's the migration moving? And not even just the migration, because migration isn't necessarily sustainable growth. What's going on in that population itself? You know, is the population growing? Is it all old people? Is it younger people? Like what's the makeup of that population? And are they are they having their own growth outside of inward migration? Inward migration is nice but you want to have both, right? And so then obviously job growth, the people are following the jobs. So the jobs is what usually kind of comes first. What industries are there? How diverse is it? You know, all these kinds of layers, what are the schools like? What are the crimes? So when you start to get down into the micro neighborhood, right? To me, that's all the business of multifamily. So the industry of real estate, the business of multifamily, and then the management team. So your management risk, right? Are they newbie? Is this their first deal? Have they ever done a syndication before? Are they new to this market? Or they are 
you know, born and raised and they know it, you know, like the back of their hand and they've got relationships established there and good partnership capabilities because of those relationships, this kind of thing. I mean, we literally do like, you know, a background check. Is there anything out there that's like nefarious or what have you? You know, you want to know, you want to trust, but verify. We go, we meet them, we talk to them, we'll go through their other projects, we'll go physically visit other projects that they've either completed or are in process of, right? We want to see what their performance has been through through the entire cycle of whatever their hold period was, whether it was three, five, or seven years type of thing. And then we're looking at things like their systems of communication with investors, because we've kind of been more on the side of educating and winning the trust of investors. We take very seriously the deals we walk them into, and we will not introduce them to a deal that we're not willing to invest in ourselves. And so how is that management team when it comes to dealing with adversity? I mean, it's great when things are going well, right? You know, they have their systems. It's all, you know, they got their people in place. Great. COVID hit. Oh, (laughs) what happens? Are they all of a sudden scrambling and communicating less? Or are they actually communicating more? Are they letting you know on a monthly basis, here's what's up and down and here's why, here's what we're doing to combat it, right? Here's how we're working to overcome it. So that sort of transparency and sort of integrity in communication, like one of our you know partners in, in Texas, they were in a deal, right? We were under contract, all that stuff, doing the due diligence. By the way, this was March, early March, 2020 when everything was hitting the fan, right? And it was like, they're in the deal. The two core partners, operating partners, have like 200, 250,000 in earnest money in there. They go through the due diligence. They find, okay, wow, this is, COVID's really affecting this. This is a new asset. It's not one we've been controlling. The tenancy is not as great as what we usually fill in our buildings. There's going to be some hiccups. We feel like we need to go back to the table and do a little renegotiating with the seller. They wanted a 6% discount. Seller said, go pound sand. They walked away, lost the $250,000 to protect their investors. That said a whole lot about that partner. So that's the kind of things we look for in, in people that we partner with. Absolutely. I think, you know, we have a, a profound responsibility and obligation totally. to be fiduciaries of our investors and their interests. Absolutely. And so follow-up question, you know, we have the industry of real estate, the business of real estate, and then the management team. Which do you think takes precedence over the others? Mm, at the end of the day, it always comes down to the people. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, right, you can have an okay asset, but a dynamite team. And they'll come up with a way to make it win, either in the way that they buy it, in the way they finance it, or the way that they manage it, you know? That's exactly right. We share that same sentiment, right, Brian? Betting on the jockey, not the horse. Uh, (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well, Kiki, man, I tell you, this this has been a a very informative, packed episode in just a very short uh, few minutes here. I mean, obviously, you've 
expelled a lot of wisdom in this conversation through the experiences that you've gone through in real estate. And so we definitely appreciate that. They've offered a lot of great insights here. And I've really, you know, it's been fun just to see your personality. I mean, you can obviously tell this is something that you're very, very passionate about and your energy is very infectious. So I uh, really appreciate that. Brian, anything for Kiki before we get to the final four here? No, no, definitely appreciate you coming on, Kiki. I think you added a lot of value to our listeners and just kind of showing them like, you know, you can take, there's different ways to find success, but you know, if you're, if you're right. your toes and a bunch of stuff and, you know, figure out what works for you, make sure you're uh, analyzing your risk and essentially finding good operators to work with. And, you know, if you put your head down and work and find good partners, good things tend to happen. So we appreciate you sharing your story. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, right. It's like, you can do all the analysis and, and so forth and all the due diligence, but you got to be bold and take action. That's right. And we find that as an investor group together, we elevate each other in that way, right? We get challenged with questions we haven't thought to ask. You know, it's like, we want smart money, right? You want people who are thinking like you're thinking because that just raises the whole team. And then they draw other people like that to you as well. You know, we, we carry a lot of responsibility in this industry as investors, especially when you talk about raising private capital. But I think there's a tendency to overcomplicate this business. You know, yes, it has complexity. Yes, there are absolutely things that you have to know and you have to be educated. But at the end of the day, you can't overcomplicate it. You can't make mm-hmm. it more dynamic than what it needs to be. And so, and, right. you know, you summed it up so well there. So I appreciate that. But all right, Kiki, well, look, before we go, we'll have a couple more questions for you and then we'll wrap sure. up. Okay. So, you know, one thing that we love to get from all of our guests is, you know, what do you like to do for your continued education to further your own investing? Mm. Well, as you've noticed, I'm a bit of a real estate geek. (laughs) I do love it. I find it hard not to talk about it. Um, Podcasts, audiobooks, conferences, literally just meeting up people face to face. We actually just bought a 40 foot RV and we're about to go on an investor road tour. So we leave tomorrow. And we're going to be hitting like 12 cities. Nashville's going to be the first spot. We've woven it in with life. Well, I have a little bit of a family reunion going on in the Outer Banks, North Carolina, just after Labor Day. But yeah, we're going to be going up to New York, see a bunch of friends there in New York City, Long Island, all of that, Philadelphia, and kind of just down the seaboard a bit. So North Carolina, Atlanta, and all that. So getting out, meeting, talking to people, right? finding out what they're afraid of. Because you know how sometimes when you are a total real estate geek, you forget what it's like to be a newbie or you, you know wh- what it is that, that, that people get tripped up on. And so having those conversations helps. Yeah, reading, reading, listening, YouTube. <laughs> Neil Bawa, the mad scientist of multifamily. Love that man. Fellow Californian, gotta love him. Fellow tech guy, you know, but dang, is he... He's just magnificent with the data, you know, and, you know, as a person, right, when we're all trying to kind of keep our fingers on the pulse of things, having people like that in your circle that provide such a great service in terms of wealth of data-driven information is fantastic. I would 100% agree with that. Definitely important to be networking and have guys like that in your circle. Absolutely, 100%. And um, yep. yeah, I didn't hear Houston on that uh, that excursion. Uh, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're not, we're probably not hitting Texas this time. I think that will be a second trip, actually. So our plan is to like kind of get out for this early piece, be back here sort of middle of October. We don't want a lot of snow flying before we get that rig back here. 
And I think we'll stay here at least through a bit of the winter to hope we can get some skiing and riding in and, um, and then go back out and do another circle tour. But I'll tell you what, my friend, we're coming to Texas. I'd love to see you. All right. Absolutely. Hold you to it. Hold yeah. To it. Brian will have a nice <laughs> cup of coffee prepared for you. Oh, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll bring him some of my coffee from uh, Columbia. Uh oh, Brian, you got a challenge here, buddy. That's it. That's it. I'm looking forward to it. All right, Kiki, what's what have been one or two lasting lessons that you've learned along your journey? Hmm. You can't do it all yourself, and good is better than perfect. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. that's a really good one. Yeah, it's really hard to rein myself in from that one. I can get like neurotic, and it's like it's all it it's all in my head. You know what I mean? Like often it is, you know, because like a little group like this is easy because I'm an introvert, but introverts live a good part of their life in their head. And so, you know, you talk yourself into or out of things that are just silly sometimes. So just letting go of perfection, um, leading with my intent, my true intent to educate and help. I mean, it was very, just touched me that you were like, dude, this is a lot of good value for our listeners. That's exactly why I'm here. It's what makes me feel good. It's what makes me get up in the morning. Honestly, I want to help elevate others the way others have helped elevate me. You know, love that. Love that. Really respect that. So yeah. All right, Kiki, what's one last piece of advice you'd give to the listeners to help them grow their businesses? Start taking action. Start taking action. The first one's always the hardest. Just get in a deal, right? Don't wait to time the market. Don't let all this be fear mongering and stuff. Do your homework and get in the game. Boom. Love it. Mic drop right there. So <laughs> that's it. <laughs> All right, Kiki, tell the audience how they can get uh, connected with you and learn more about you. Yeah, sure. Um, easiest thing is to just go straight to our website, which is globalinvestoralliance.com. And right on that first page, you'll see a big orange button that says book a free strategy call, you know, strategy call, intro call. How you doing? Here's what I'm trying to achieve. You know, whatever you want to call it, we find the best way to to really serve people is to as quickly as possible have at least like 20 minutes on the phone talking to them to understand what they're trying to achieve. Because if I can't help them, if we're not the right fit, I want to let them know that right away and see if I can actually maybe steer them in a direction that's going to be more helpful to their cause. So, um, you know, there's plenty of stuff they can peruse on there. If you want to just book right away and talk, fine. You want to peruse through how it works. Good page to go to because it describes kind of how we work with you. And that's that. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely make sure that's all in the show note. Kiki, thank you again so much for tuning in with us today. And, uh, you know, just keep crushing it. Love what you're doing. (laughs) Thanks so much. Yeah, great, guys. Great talking to you. You too. Okay. Today's episode was proudly brought to you by Blue Oak Capital. To learn more about Blue Oak Capital and how you can partner with us, visit www.blueoakinvests.com. Tune in next time.